Hello everybody and welcome to the next episode of You Can't Handle The Truth. In today's episode we will be talking about a brand new release, The Suicide Squad. This isn't The Suicide Squad from 2016, this is THE Suicide Squad, which is brand new out from director James Gunn, who, yeah, it's impressive that he made this film because it got made in the aftermath of being fired by Disney, and then DC just went, okay, you know what, you can make whatever film you want, just go crazy, and go crazy is exactly what he did. This film is fun. This film is a lot of fun compared to the 2016 version. I don't want to compare it that much, okay? I want to leave the 2016 Suicide Squad to its own depth of hell where it belongs to burn for all eternity because that film is horrendous. But I feel like there's got to be so many comparisons to it because this is just significantly better in every way possible. But I'm going to do my best to just avoid 2016 Suicide Squad as much as I can even though I've already said that word about three times in the first minute. So, yeah, forget about that. Starting now, this is all about THE Suicide Squad, because it's important for the THE at the front of it to distinguish them. I don't know. I don't know what the proper thought process was behind actually naming this film. I wouldn't really call it Suicide Squad 2, but I wouldn't really call it a reboot or anything. It's just... It's its own thing, and that kind of does it a lot more favours than it would most films. So yeah, The Suicide Squad, let's get into it. This is the spoiler review, so just pre-warning, there'll be a lot of spoilers, obviously. If you haven't seen the film, which is probably likely, because at the time of release, it's only just come out in cinemas. I'm literally just back from watching it on opening day as I'm recording this. So yeah, the non-spoiler review should be up as well. Feel free to go check that out. For now, I'm going to get down to the nitty-gritty of The Suicide Squad. Right off the bat, this film isn't perfect, but it doesn't need to be, and that's the main thing to understand. A Suicide Squad movie is going to be messy, it's going to be rough around the edges, it's going to be controversial in some respect, but it doesn't need to be perfect. And this film is far from perfect, but it's so good, it's really fun, it's got great characters, it's got great humour, it's extremely bloody and violent. There's not really a lot of emotion to go with it. I mean, I didn't feel that necessarily, and I usually feel emotion with a lot of films, but to be fair, it was nice and refreshing to actually just watch a superhero film, to watch any film even, that didn't have a lot of weight in emotion to it. It was just, here's what it is. Let's just go crazy for two hours. And I liked that a lot. Right from the very first scene, it's bloody, it's funny, you don't really know what to expect. There's a lot of twists and turns where the characters are going to live or die. The one thing I was thinking about through the film was how I couldn't really make a safe bet as to who was actually going to end up living by the end of this film. Whereas with the first film, you could do that. I'm pretty sure everybody except like three people survived in the first film. Like A lot of people just didn't die. In this film, a lot of people die, and that's great. There's a few issues I do have with the deaths, first and foremost. The whole plot revolves around how these characters have implants in the back of their necks, and if they fail to do a mission, or if they cut and run, they'll get it exploded. Now, this is exactly the same as what happened in the first film, except only one character got the head blown off in the first film. Exactly the same thing happens here, only one person. Maybe that's a good thing that only one person cuts and runs. However, I would have liked to see more of the use of the device in the back of the neck because it really feels like it's all for show. 
even though they're threatened with it once in a while, I actually want to see it happen. Maybe I just want to see people's heads being blown off, I don't know. But that still happens a lot in this film, a lot. And let me tell you, it is gruesome and it's bloody and it's amazing to see. It's gorgeous. Right from the very first scene, 10 minutes in, characters have already had their faces exploded, they've been chopped in half, they've been shot, they've been stabbed. They've been impaled by like branches and tree stumps and then crushed by an exploding helicopter. You can't write this, it's great. You didn't expect any of this walking in, especially when said character does get impaled and then set alight in a burning helicopter. I don't even know what the term of death that would be, but he's Captain Boomerang from the first film. So he's one of the main characters that we've seen already and he dies 10 minutes in. That's mate, probably even five minutes in. I didn't expect them to do it. I was hoping they would because I'm really not a fan of the character. Jai Courtney does a fine role as much as he can do. He's not the best actor, but I just didn't really like the character in the first film. And he dies instantly. And I was actually really glad about that. Maybe I'm evil because a lot of the deaths that happen, I'm glad about. But then again, these Suicide Squad members, they are bad guys doing bad things. So you shouldn't really be rooting for them. So it kind of makes sense that I'm glad when they do die. But it was just a lot of satisfaction I got from it. And so he dies instantly. Almost every other member of the initial Suicide Squad Task Force X does die as well. Except for Harley Quinn, of course. Because if Harley died that early on, it would be crazy. Like Even for crazy standards... That would be just shocking. And I think a lot of people would have had issues with that. Especially Margot Robbie. Because she's not getting paid to just die in the first scene. Every other character that does die. You can tell they're clearly just there for a cute little cameo. And it's funny. It's interesting. You get a little bit of a dynamic of the squad. Before this battle in which they all die. And that is quite funny. I was having a good time with it. There's a few characters I thought were great. Weasel is hilarious. I don't know what creature he is but neither do they because some of them were saying he's a dog some would say he's a giant rat he is just a weasel and it's haunting to look at yet kind of cute in the sense that he's just a little simple animal that stands on two legs and is human sized for some reason i don't know what it is but it's amazing however he dies as well or at least you think he dies but then spoiler alert for right at the very end of the film in the first after credit sequence he's alive which I'm glad about, and I hope he comes back. I hope they don't just shove him off to a corner for him never to return. I would like to see more of Weasel. I don't think anybody actually wants to see Weasel because he looks horrible, but I do because I just thought he was funny and weirdly charming in a very strange sense. I'm going to try and remember some of the other characters, but they were very random, obscure names that I can't fully remember. There was TDK, which is the detachable kid, I think he stands for. He's okay, he's quite funny. He randomly pops his arms out of his sockets and they just... Not like in the literal sense of... Well, okay, in the most literal sense of popping your arms out of your sockets. In the sense that they detach, his arms just come away from his body. And I was thinking they would maybe like blast straight forwards and go to wherever he wanted... But they just sort of stumble along. They're just weirdly floating through the air really slowly. And then they just slap people. I thought it was a bit disappointing. I was hoping they would be more powerful than they actually were. But these characters, they're just 
they're rubbish. Essentially, they are rubbish, but that's what the gist is. They are terrible. And I think that works because what James Gunn has brought to this film was something that was missing in the first film in the sense that characters we haven't heard of were either going to be interested by or they're just going to die anyway, so it doesn't really matter what we think. Whereas in the first film, you had more well-known characters that just sucked the life out of everything. They were just rubbish. They were so poorly used and poorly written. This film has better written characters, but sometimes it pays for them not to be written well because they are just going to die just a couple of minutes after we've seen them. So it works weirdly well. I don't know how best to understand it, but it just works for what it is. It works you know, I don't want to watch a Suicide Squad movie where none of them actually live up to that name. They all just survive. This film is the complete opposite of that. And there are intense stakes throughout. You don't really know how a scene is going to play out. Characters could look like they're about to die, but then something random is going to happen and then they survive and then a different character dies. Or there's a fight scene and you're not sure who's actually going to come out alive in this case. It worked. It worked extremely well. And had a great time with the majority of those high stakes scenes. Back to this initial mission, and they're coming onto this beach in, I cannot remember the name of the place, but it's somewhere off the coast of South America, and they're essentially a massive diversion. So, this whole squad that we're seeing, that we've been introduced to for the first 10 minutes, it's just a decoy, but we don't know that until they'll die, by which time it's extremely evident that they're clearly just a decoy for the real Suicide Squad to come in. I did like that because there was so much speculation beforehand thinking who's going to survive, who's going to die. We've seen these clips in the trailers, that means so-and-so has got to make it to this point, and yet the way in which the trailers were crafted, you didn't fully know which scene happened in which order, and that worked extremely well for the final product because you were left guessing and it was extremely unexpected when certain characters such as Captain Boomerang, such as Weasel and Michael Rooker's character, he dies instantly. Even though he's in the majority of the trailer, it's kind of set up that he's one of the main ones to be brought into this task force and he dies. So that was great. I was getting a lot of Saving Private Ryan vibes from the initial scene in this film because they're all charging up onto a beach and it's just a massive bloodbath, everybody dies. And so even though it wasn't shot at all like Saving Private Ryan or any serious war film, there were a lot of 70s-esque Vietnam war film vibes going on from this film and I dug that. I did enjoy those aspects of it and this opening scene really cemented what James Gunn was trying to bring to the film. The directing style was quite unorthodox and it would just randomly zoom in and zoom out every once in a while. I enjoyed that. I do love, I'm very partial to a good zoom and to try and like retract focus and power in the focus it was different. I was not expecting that from this type of film, especially because in previous James Gunn films, there hasn't really been this element of it. So he was really trying to branch out and do something completely different. And it worked. I can see how a lot of people may think it wasn't cemented down as being the smoothest of films and how the directing is quite all over the place. But that's pretty much what it was going for. And when you think about it that way, it did its job. What more could you ask for? I don't want to compare it, but compared to the Suicide Squad in 2016, the directing is all over the place purely because of studio interference. Right? David Ayer didn't do a bad job, it was just the edit was completely butchered in post-production. So that's why the film is such a mess. 
But with this film, he's been given the complete reins on this project. James Gunn runs with that so much, and he just makes something that's totally unique and different and out there. And it's really fresh for the most part. There's a few tropes here and there that I've seen in other films, but the majority speaking is fresh. So I loved the opening. I thought the opening credits were really fun because it just takes you looking at every single character that's died just in the last five minutes, which is jarring. It's pretty jarring, but it was interesting and it was shot beautifully. There was a lot of spinning around for my liking. There was a bit too much of the camera just randomly spinning and showing these characters that are dead on the floor, but then randomly spinning to try and give them a sense of life again. But it was a bit headachey and it made me feel a little bit dizzy. But then that quickly changes and there's no more spinning throughout the film, which is ideal. And then right after the credits, it then goes backwards to give a brief insight of a few days earlier. But here's the issue. For a lot of the timestamps in this film, or when it goes to a new location, or even if it was just doing like a chapter title, I don't know what it was going for, but the title cards that would pop up, like timestamps, usually when you've got like a three days earlier or eight days later, it would properly come up in bold and you'd know what the time was. In this film, it was blending into the nature of things around it. So you'd have, say, muck on a toilet with a few days earlier, or you'd have trees in a jungle saying, meanwhile, Harley is here. But I was thinking, I like it on the one hand, but also it's a bit too niche. And I just think I would rather see either nothing at all, or just clear, bold timestamps and title screen type things. This film just randomly tried new things every single time it could. And then I was thinking, is it doing chapter titles? What is it going for? Because some of them would say Suicide Squad versus Giant Starro the Conqueror. Or it would say Operation Jotunheim, Operation Save Harley. It would just randomly do these things. So I'm thinking, are these chapters, what is it going for? Or is it just trying to say, oh look, we can be artsy too. I wasn't fully sure. That's one of the only things I'm not fully convinced on, whether it was necessary. I'm glad it was different because I wouldn't want it to just fall into the same trap of having generic backwards and forwards stamps. But at the same time, that works. We've seen it done a hundred times before and it works. And I mean, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But this film does change it and kind of breaks it even more. And I'm not sure it always pays off because a lot of them they were hard to distinguish what it was actually saying because it would be muck on a toilet or it would be mud in the jungle. You would see just random words and then by the time they were disappeared, it was too late to actually read what the whole sentence was saying. So it was kind of confusing and a bit too quick. Maybe if it had closed caption subtitles underneath, that would have been better. But I don't know. I'm just being very picky about that. It just, it looked nice, but... It wasn't entirely necessary. And if you're going to do this sort of thing, just make it necessary. There was nothing crying out for this film to use that element, to me anyway. As a little sidebar from this, it jumped around fine until the ending when there was a really jarring jump back to like eight minutes earlier, which I just wasn't a huge fan of. The, the place it cuts, I can understand why they cut it, but... The very first thing you see after cutting back from something extremely intense is a little comic relief scene. And 
on its own i loved it i loved that scene because it's king shark he's been one of the funniest characters throughout the film and so to see him come into his element a bit more was hilarious however slotting that right after a scene in which you don't know if a character is going to survive that just seemed a little bit off and to just jump back eight minutes it was just i've literally seen that in the previous film in this franchise i don't know i don't know what the franchise is at this stage is it all part of the extended universe for dc is it its own thing now i do not know but in birds of prey and the fantabulous emancipation of one harley quinn just call it birds of prey birds of prey there's a lot of four minutes earlier there's a lot of eight minutes earlier that sort of thing happens all the time and it happens in this film and i'm thinking marvel wouldn't do this so on the one hand well done because dc are trying to establish themselves as something different but i like the way marvel does it i like the way to do flashbacks or i like the way they jump around with the time dc are a bit of a mess when it comes to that but dc are a mess when it comes to everything so that's what's to be expected at this stage however for the majority of this film i was aware of what time it was meant to be set in it was jumping around but it was fine in the way it was doing it and then it just sort of snapped you right back out of the action at the worst possible time but i can't help but feel this is just what warner bros do because the exact same thing happened in ready player one the editing of that final battle is pretty great but then just randomly halfway through the battle it cuts to what's happening in the real world and a really stupid car chase that i'm not fully into it drags you out of that action so harshly and i'm fine if it's going to do it and justify it justify the reasoning for why it's taking you out of one scene to put you into another these films don't do that and the suicide squad did it up until the very end i wasn't fully on board with how it cut there but there was a moment earlier on in which i felt the same way however it wasn't as explicit as an eight minutes earlier jump it was a meanwhile this was what was happening and the film cuts from the suicide squad properly entering the jungle and going about their mission and it would cut to harley quinn and what she was doing and at first that scene didn't work for me it didn't work at all it was a really strange scene in which she just felt like her character had been completely messed up she was meeting with the president of this nation and he was wooing her it was like a montage scene of them falling in love even though they've only just met and he then proposes to her I just felt that they were benching Harley Quinn in favour of this really stereotypical female role for the benefit of nobody. It was not benefiting anybody except for the guy that we don't even know who he is. He's just the president of this random country. We don't know where he is. We don't know who he is. We, I don't even know who the actor is. He's just a complete nobody. And then she kills him, which is the real turning point of that scene because it works so well. I didn't see it coming. I was hoping something big was going to happen but the gunshot is just so shocking and really quite alarming and she kills him it was really funny because she said if she ever saw a red flag in the guy she was dating again she would kill him that's a bit extreme but that's funny that's what harley quinn is she's extreme she does these things and it worked i'm just not a fan of having to wait to get to that stage because everything that was happening i just wasn't enjoying and it sucked you right out of the dynamic of the Suicide Squad, which was terrific. Their back and forth was amazing. The banter was great. Everything worked. And then to switch places and go into this scene that just wasn't flowing, it was a risk. It was a huge risk. 
And it kind of pains me to say that it paid off because of the end result. It really did. The best comparison I can draw this to is the same thing happened in A Quiet Place Part 2 earlier in the year. There's a scene in which it builds up for about 10 to 15 minutes. It's an extremely long building up scene. And then the ending nails it. The way the scene ends is so good. It makes every single thing that happened previously worthwhile. The same thing kind of happened for me in The Suicide Squad. However, I'm still not fully convinced I like the scene with the montage and them falling in love, just going on dates and having dinner and seeing birds. It it made no sense. It stuck out like a sore thumb to me. But then the ending made it worthwhile. See, things like this are what make it an imperfect film. And imperfections happen in everything. And it's what can sometimes make films great, having these imperfections. And I think this film benefits from that because it's far from perfect. It's extremely rough around the edges. And in the grand scheme of things, I had a lot of fun with it. And relatively speaking, I would rather see one bad scene in a great film than one great scene in a bad film, which is exactly the way I would describe the previous Suicide Squad. Because the scene in the first film with Joker and Harley Quinn as she becomes Harley Quinn. That's terrific. That is one of my favourite scenes in a comic book film. And so I was kind of worried that they were messing up the character of Harley Quinn in The Suicide Squad because she's already had the best scene in the previous film and now you're giving her the worst scene in this film. And we haven't seen a lot of her up until this stage. My expectations were completely shattered after this because... She does have one of the best scenes in the film, if not the best scene. And I'm hesitant to say it's one of the most fun and exciting scenes of any comic book movie. And that's all because of how James Gunn directs her amazing escape sequence, which we know he can do that because he did it in both Guardians of the Galaxy films. He did the main Guardians escape scene in the first one, and he did Yondu and Rocket's escape scene in the second film. Both of them are great. This one is probably the ever so slightly bit better. I don't know if it's because the music choice for it is amazing. I don't know if it's because it's so visually striking and gorgeous. I don't know if it's just extremely violent and it made me laugh so much. I don't know what it is, but it worked tremendously. And that sold me on what they were doing with Harley Quinn's character because I was extremely worried. I was thinking, they've ruined this. They've ruined her character. Especially because I just watched Birds of Prey before going to see this film. I love her character. I love the way Margot Robbie portrays her. It's perfect. And I was thinking, she's got to be great in this. And she was. But she was unnecessarily sidelined for a lot of it. And it annoyed me. But then that all changed when her escape scene happens. And from that point on, she's great. She's the best character in the film, pretty much. Characters aside, I want to talk about weapons. Because Idris Elba's character of Bloodsport, he has one of the coolest arsenal of weaponry I've ever seen. It's constantly changing and it's adaptable and he just randomly pulls apart different things and sticks them on top of each other and it changes into all sorts of different weapons. It's amazing. I don't know how to describe it. I don't know what happens. I don't know what it is. I don't know who came up with these weapons, but... They are so good and they're so exciting and it's better than just having a random sniper or a pistol or anything like that. He has these ever-changing and adaptable guns that just make the film great. And his character, Idris Elba, plays the hell out of his character. He's so good. However, 
There's a big however. I feel like I'm saying there's a lot of howevers with this film. The point is, it's fun. It's so good. And it's so much better than the previous film. But my issue with Bloodsport is he's exactly the same character as Will Smith's Deadshot in the first film. It's exactly the same. Every scenario is pretty much the same. Only this time, instead of Batman capturing Deadshot in the first film, this time... Bloodsport is captured because he put Superman in the ICU. So they've clearly just switched superheroes that they attack. But relatively speaking, they're exactly the same character. They're both hitmen who get paid to kill people. They both have daughter problems. They're both the leaders of this task force. It's exactly the same. And it feels like it's a bit of a cheap move to have the main black lead in the film just be exactly the same character from the previous film. <laughs> even though Will Smith character was arguably one of the best parts of the first film, even though he didn't reprise his role for this film, it felt like he didn't spirit because Bloodsport is just a carbon copy of that character. There's no difference. And then there is a sense of irony because Amanda Waller describes his character and then goes on to describe John Cena's Peacemaker character and they are the same. And they make reference to that saying, I thought you said we were chosen for our unique abilities. He's exactly the same as me. And he is. But both of these are exactly the same as Deadshot from the first film. So if you're going to have new characters, and if you're not going to recast a character per se, it could have easily been the same character, only this time Idris Elba has been cast instead of Will Smith. That would have made so much sense. But no, he's playing this new character called Bloodsport, I don't know if he's been in loads of comics before. I don't know if he's brand new for this universe and this film. He is the same character as Deadshot. It's exactly the same. There is no difference. There is literally no difference. They both wear masks, even. They both kill people. They're both having impeccable aim. They're both trying to get out of prison to help their daughters. It's just the same. It's exactly the same. Prove me wrong. Although I did enjoy Idris Elba's Bloodsport a lot more than I did Will Smith's Deadshot. These names are going to get so confusing. You've got Deadshot, you've got Bloodsport. Soon enough, I'm going to be calling them Bloodshot and Deadsport. Deadsport? That's such a bad name. Yeah, so I'm glad they have Bloodsport and Deadshot, but God, the names are so confusing. Bloodsport's mask? I hate saying Blood. Bloodsport has lost all its meaning. You know that thing when you say a word so many times, it loses its association and you think it's a made-up word? Bloodsport, Blood, Blood. Yeah, Bloodsport's gone. Bloodsport is gone. He's got a very cool mask along with his arsenal. I don't know what tech he's using. It could be nanotech. It could be anything. It's never explained. And I kind of like that. I, I like the sense of ambiguity with this film. Because there's a lot of things that just aren't explained. They don't need to be. Because it's just wild. It's just a wacky ride that you don't need to think about. It's, it works. There's a giant starfish. I'm not even going to question that. It came from space. Starro the Conqueror is a giant starfish that came from space that randomly has babies spewing out of its armpits. If, if a starfish even has armpits, I don't know. Patrick Starr does, so I'm saying that they come out of his armpits because he lifts his arms up and there's like a slip between the legs and the arm. How many arms and legs does a starfish have? Because I'm thinking that it is literally Patrick Starr in the sense that it's got the top cone thing is the head. It's got two arms and two legs, and the way this starfish walks is like that too, but it's hilarious. And so baby starfish faces come out of its armpits like alien face huggers. They leech onto people, and they turn them into zombies, essentially. They turn them into zombies. 
all worshipping this starfish god, whatever it is. I don't even know why I'm talking about this starfish. But yeah, nothing makes sense. Nothing has to. The film works because it's just a fun, stupid, enjoyable, bloody ride is what it is. And it's great. The scenes when John Cena and Idris Elba are trying to get the best kills, essentially. They're trying to one-up each other when they take out a whole camp. Then you find out that the camp was actually good guys, they're freedom fighters, which just changes the entire scene completely. And it's hilarious that you only just find this out at the very end of the scene. You think what they're doing is a good thing, relatively speaking, because they're still killing people. That's never a good thing, but they are bad guys and they are meant to kill these people, having been ordered to kill anybody they come into contact with, just kill on sight. And so they kill all these people. Bloodsport and Peacemaker are stabbing people, shooting people, blow darting people any way you can imagine they're just killing people and they're all good guys and so they've just killed all of the help that they could get it's great and i like how scenes in this film can change right at the very end and it flips everything on its head things you don't expect to happen will happen there's a lot of mystery to be had and i'm surprised at that because you'd think there wouldn't be a huge mystery with how scenes are going to play out in a suicide squad film somebody's gonna die and yet there is a huge amount of mystery with who's gonna die and how are they gonna die so i liked that aspect of it and although a giant starfish wreaking havoc on a city turning people into its minions of zombie starfish people although that seems pretty much fate of the world there wasn't an ironic line of we've got to go save the world we've got to stop this big attack from happening that happened in the first film, which is extremely unnecessary. This film is a lot more grounded with a giant starfish. Because what could be more grounded than a giant creature that lives under the sea and yet was found in space? That's what makes sense. I feel like nobody's actually stopped to question the logic that this starfish was actually found in space and not in the ocean. I have only just realised that as I'm saying this. But yeah, that makes no sense. Another thing that makes zero sense whatsoever, Peter Capaldi, his accent. What happens to his accent in this film? I really don't know. Is he trying to play an English character? Is he trying to play a Scottish character? It changes constantly from scene to scene. It just changes. And then at the very end, when he's given this big monologue about what the starfish is and how it does things, it fluctuates so much. It was jarring. I love, I love, I love Peter Capaldi as an actor. And I was hoping he would have some funnier rants in this film, per se. Because his character in the thick of it is just so funny in how he shouts at people. There's a couple of times that shines through. But I don't think it should, because I'm pretty sure he's trying to play an English character. But then every time he shouts, he does branch into Scottish sounding. Which, I don't know, I'm not going to be too harsh on dialects here, but just stick to one. No, stick to one. I'm glad Idris Elba didn't do like a weird American accent he's done in the past because he benefits extremely well from just maintaining his British accent. And so I was expecting Peter Capaldi to stick to preferably his Scottish accent, but he doesn't do that and it changes so much. I was just left thinking, I don't know what he's meant to be at this point, but I'm not trying to think about it too much because he does have a lot of sticks poking out of his head. I don't know what they are. They're like antenna things. He's the thinker. And he's using his brain to boost signals and whatever. I don't know what he's got sticking out of his head. I really don't know. It's never understood. 
So when he's got these things sticking out of his head, I'm not going to take into account his accent too harshly. That being said, it was annoying. It was very annoying, and I didn't love his character as much as I was hoping to, but there are plenty of other characters I enjoyed significantly more than I thought I would. Ratcatcher 2, she was great, purely because I can relate to her sleeping so much. And as soon as we meet her, I was like, I love her. I love her character because she sleeps so heavy and she sleeps so long. She just naps as much as she can. That's my spirit animal right there. She is my spirit animal. I'm not a huge fan of the powers she has because rats are just rats. You know, I, I'm not a fan of rats. They're not nice. And it's kind of weird that the whole starfish thing got brought down by the power of rats. You know, it didn't really feel necessary. I'm, not, I'm just not a huge fan of rats. I'm really not. And I feel like anybody who really likes rats has a bit of an issue. <laughs> because rats aren't meant to be likeable. If they were mice, sure. But they were, they were rats. They were rats. Nobody likes rats. Rats are just vermin. Anyway, I'm not going to talk about rats too much. Polka Dot Man. That's another character that's in this film. Polka Dot Man. He fires polka dots at people. I like his powers, and he's a bit creepy, he's a bit weird. There's a reference to him being Norman Bates, which works, because I was thinking, there's definitely a connection there, he's definitely creepy like that. But then he's got mommy issues, and every once in a while, you just see his mom inserted into random scenes. And Even though the CGI was flawless throughout this film, the CGI was fantastic in every single scene. I'm not a huge fan of what went on with his mom. It was just, it didn't, it didn't land for me. It really didn't land. Especially when he's looking at the Suicide Squad and then his mom is superimposed as to every single character. It didn't work. It just didn't work. That time was okay. But then his mom becomes the giant starfish and I'm just thinking, yeah, this joke's got old. I'm just not, some people will find it funny. I know some people will definitely find it funny. But to me, it just didn't land. The first time didn't land. The second time didn't land. And the third time, yeah, it just didn't land at all. However, every other joke in the film pretty much landed. There was a lot of humorous moments. And I was laughing a lot. There's a line that John Cena says. It's so funny. King Shark is just about to eat Ratcatcher 2. Her name's Ratcatcher 2, by the way, because Ratcatcher 1 died. And there's a joke about how was Ratcatcher 1 not available. I'm not a huge lover of Ratcatcher 2. Like, why not just call yourself the Ratcatcher or something like that? Because when you've got Green Goblin, the sequel to that is New Goblin or whatever. That's a dumbass name. I do not like that name from Spider-Man 3. But you get the idea of you don't just stick a 2 at the end of the name. Like, the new Captain America isn't going to be called Captain America 2, is he? He's not. He's just not. So Ratcatcher 2 unique. I've never heard of a superhero or supervillain with just a random number at the end of the name. Like, they're just the second variant of it, so they've called themselves Ratcatcher 2 or Superman 2, whatever. You know, that's not happening. So I kind of like it, but at the same time, it's not, meh. It's just air. It's what it is. So Ratcatcher 2 is just about to be eaten by King Shark, and everybody goes to rescue her, they beat up King Shark for a little bit, just daze him, and John Cena just turns up, and all he's wearing are pants. He's just wearing pants. He's wearing tighty whities as Bloodsport calls them. 
And then John Cena goes, that's racist. And I'm thinking, that's great. That was funny, that was. The delivery was great. The irony is great. I love it when this sort of thing happens, when something's said, and it's so ironic, and it's just so funny. The delivery of everything was just excellent. The dynamic between Idris and John Cena, tremendous. So good. I really loved those characters and what they brought to the table. And I'm going to skip forwards right to the end of their characters, but Bloodsport kills, or does he? He kills Peacemaker, and the shot is so gorgeous. Both of them fire the bullets at the exact same time, and this is when the poetic justice, which always comes into every single film, I was honestly thinking at one point, this film is going to have zero poetic justice, and I love that. I was thinking, thank God the film gods heard me, because after my old review of me talking about how poetic justice is done to death and there's so many semicircles that come back around, it feels so fake. I was thinking, this film is not doing that, it's great. There was one very early on, which works. Michael Rucker's character kills a bird. After he dies, the same species of that bird comes down and picks at his brains. That's brilliant. That is poetic justice to write, because the bad character who kills a bird unnecessarily, then gets eaten by a bird. That's brilliant. It's so good. That's what I want to see. With this film, there was nothing I was thinking that's massively set up to come back later. And it happens to be one of the most throwaway lines about bullet sizes and about how he kills people. That's what came back to bite them in the bum. And it's brilliant because the way it was shot, it was like something that I wanted there was slow motion with the bullets, it was focusing in on them, they were both coming at each other, it was gorgeous, it was so beautifully framed and shot, the bullets come straight towards each other, Bloodsport's bullet pierces straight through Peacemaker's bullet and kills him, and it's so good, I loved it, even though DC have a track record with over slow motioning everything, this worked, sometimes you've just got to do it, and it's ironic because there was a scene earlier on when a character calls another character a show-off and he says, it's not showing off if what you're doing is dope. And what was happening here was dope. So I'm all for the showing off and I'm all for the slow motion because it was dope. It was so dope. So yeah, Peacemaker meets his end until the after credit scene. Now I'm not sure if bringing him back is a good thing. I love his character, I love the way John Cena plays him, but although he's getting his own TV series in the new year, which has already finished filming, I thought that was going to be a prequel, and I would be happy if that is a prequel, because I'm not fully sure his character should come back. I would rather see a new character just come in to fill his spot. If they are going to do a sequel to this film and it's going to be about Peacemaker's revenge, maybe that would work, maybe that would be cool, because I always want to see more of John Cena. In every single film he's in, I want to see more because what he brings to the table is so good and it's so fresh and it's so unexpected. You really didn't expect these types of film stars to emerge, especially because today the two biggest films opening are headlined by former wrestlers. You've got Jungle Cruise with The Rock and you've got Suicide Squad with John Cena. Two wrestlers that have now turned actors and it's amazing. Even Dave Bautista, he used to be a wrestler. And now he's headlining films like Army of the Dead earlier in the year. This new age of film stars that's emerging is just so different. But I'm a fan. I really am a fan of these actors that were previously athletes or wrestlers or whatever you want to call them. 
I like the way these things are going and they've proven themselves time and time again they are genuinely worthy of being called actors and John Cena especially in any film he's in he's probably going to be the MVP and even though King Shark for me in this film is the MVP or Bloodsport or Harley I don't know all of them could be I love the dynamic between everybody I just love it but I feel like King Shark is definitely my MVP because he's just so funny and dumb and played by Sylvester Stallone. You never thought you would see A, a talking shark, but B, played by Sylvester Stallone in this film. And he eats people, he chews on skulls, he rips people in half, he has a fake mustache at one point. He, oh my goodness, he feels like he can be part of the blending in squad because he has a fake mustache and he just puts his fin up in front of his mouth and it's just it's so funny that type of thing it reminds me of four lions but when <laughs> when he's trying to get the bottles of bleaches and he's pretending to be a woman even though he's got a beard and the guy goes but what about your beard and he goes well i cover it and he goes how do you cover it and he puts his hands in front of his mouth and he wonders why is she covering her mouth because she's got a beard <laughs> it's just so funny that type of fake disguise situation it was so good to see a giant shark played by Sylvester Stallone pretend to have a fake mustache. It was just, it was great. I never thought I would see that in any film. Especially because King Shark's already appeared in one of the earlier seasons of the TV show of The Flash. And that CGI was garbage. Like, let's be real. The CGI of that show has gone off the rails so much. But to see a giant shark so beautiful in this film. Honestly, there were so many shots you could see so much detail in his face. If sharks even have faces, whatever they have in his nose and his whatever, in the shark, there was so much detail. There was so much acting going. I can't believe I'm saying, I cannot believe I'm saying this. There was so much acting going on just by looking into this big shark's eyes. It was beautiful. It was gorgeous. There was so much expression. There was more expression in this than I think Sylvester Stallone has ever given in any film ever. When he's just playing himself, you know, there was more expression in a giant CGI goddamn shark. And then there's scenes when he just randomly curses, and it's just amazing, because I wasn't expecting to see a giant shark drop the F-bomb. But it made me laugh so much, it was brilliant. Anyway, King Shark, MVP. I've lost my train of thought, I don't know where I was going before this. But yeah, every single character in this film is tremendous. I want to see more of John Cena. I'm kind of glad he's not dead, but at the same time, the way in which he died was great, and it kind of cancels that out now. So I'm not the biggest fan when films do this, because they ruin something that didn't need to be ruined for the sake of bringing a character back. Maybe it'll be worthwhile. Maybe. I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. Every other character in this film, the ones that died, I'm actually glad they died. I'm so glad with every single death pretty much except for weasel because i wanted to see more of weasel throughout the film and even though i'm glad he's not dead if he was in the film more it would have been so much better so much better for me and yet every single time a character died i felt yeah the time had come the character had run its course especially polka dot man because i'm very glad he died even though he didn't do anything wrong it's just the joke about his mom being in everything and the mommy issues. I'm glad he met his end. You know, it needed to happen. It really did. His powers were cool and all, but yeah, Polka Dot Man, he's not one that I'm going to say 
I wish he gets his own spin-off. You know, I really don't. I hope he doesn't. But I'm glad he was included. Because no other film would have taken a risk by including these sort of characters. No other filmmaker, other than James Gunn, would have been able to include these characters and make them work. That's the biggest thing about this film, is not only does it include characters that you don't expect to see, the characters work, everything works. And that, that was one of the biggest surprises of the film for me, is how well every single character worked with one another. Because I really was thinking beforehand, especially with the marketing suggesting don't get too attached, because characters are going to die, of course. But I was thinking, are they going to have too many big characters in here? And it distracts itself from the whole film and the dynamic between people? It doesn't. It really doesn't. The same way that Avengers Endgame balances every single major superhero in that film, the same way every single villain... Because I've got to start calling these villains. They're not superheroes. They are villains. Every single villain gets enough screen time or they have their character done enough justice before they die, which is great. And I'm just so glad this film is rated 15 or an R rating because it excels so much from being so bloody. The one thing about the first film, even though it was rated 15, there was very little to justify that rating. I don't think there was any swearing. There wasn't much blood. This film there is, there's a lot of everything. This film is harsh. This film was one of the harshest rated R films I've seen in a long time. I'm surprised it wasn't rated an 18 here. I was thinking this could easily be rated 18. Maybe a 4K release because it'll be higher quality. Maybe that might just get an 18 rating. But this film did not hold back. And that's one of the things I love about it. There are no holds barred. For the entire two hour runtime. There are a few scenes I would trim down. There are a few scenes I would probably cut out. Make it kissing that two hours mark. But for the most part. This film is a ton of fun. I had a blast with it. I loved the characters. I loved the guns. I loved the script. I loved music. The music was great in it. The score was good. But the actual music that James Gunn inserted into the film. Which we already know he can do that with both Guardians films. The music worked for what it is. The music worked so well. And I do hope we get a sequel. I really do. I just love how Disney fired James Gunn. He goes off. Works for the competition. And he knocks it out of the park. This is one of DC's best films. In recent history. It's miles better than the first one. It's so much better than half of the other films. In the DC extended universe. I still prefer something like Zack Snyder's Justice League. But this type of film. It's just so out there. And it's so extreme. It pushes everything to the highest rating it possibly can and this is one thing that separates dc from marvel marvel make consistently enjoyable family-friendly action films this is certainly not for families this is certainly not for kids and it's been so long since we've had a proper teen and upwards adult superhero flick this is essentially the deadpool of the dc universe and that's what works so well because it's just as funny, it's just as bloody, it works, everything works, there is so much fun to be had with this film, I really hope it does well at the box office, enough to warrant a sequel, I hope James Gunn returns, even though he's currently doing Guardians of the Galaxy 3, I do hope once he's finished with that trilogy, and once he's done with Marvel, he needs to go back and do a Suicide Squad 2, because I'm not sure there would be many other directors that could pull this off quite like he does. So in that respect, it's one of the most enjoyable comic book films of recent history, especially in the past five years or so, if not more. And DC have never looked better. This this could be the year of DC. However, 
Marvel have got Shang-Chi coming up, and I'm so excited for that film. I don't want to talk too much about Marvel, because this is DC's film. This is DC's world. I'm a huge fan of this film. I'm also looking forward to what Marvel brings out later in the year, but as far as I'm concerned, between this and Zack Snyder's Justice League back in March, DC are a force to be reckoned with right now. And once they get everything in order, once they give directors full reign over their films, this sort of thing happens. You can tell when there's been too much studio interference in their previous films, when things just fall completely flat. This film does not fall flat in the slightest. A couple of scenes here and there, but I'm willing to look over that, considering this film gave me so much joy and is so incredibly fun. It's amazing. This film is great. So this is a little update on the film because I've just been to see it for a second time and there are a few things that I want to talk about that I missed out in my initial review. So I thought I'd record a little bit extra just to tack it on to the end and to give my thoughts on what I felt about it after a second time because a lot of films I can only really get a good sense of understanding it after multiple watches. And so I went to see The Suicide Squad again. It's still just as funny. It's still just as shockingly violent. It's great. It's it's really fun to rewatch this film. And one thing I want to talk about in particular is just how bloody it is. I knew it was bloody, but upon watching it again, it's extremely bloody. It's, it's shocking. It's great, but it's so damn bloody. There is just a blood splatter in every single scene, pretty much. I've never seen that in a film before. There are certain times when it felt like you were watching a Mortal Kombat adaptation because of how gory it is and how insanely fun it is to watch these ridiculous massacres happen. There's one shot in particular. It's when Rick Flagg dies, which was quite shocking. I'm also glad that he did die because I wasn't a huge fan of him from the first film, but the fact that he's pretty much the leader, aside from Bloodsport, and he dies, I thought that was a big, interesting move to go for, and I liked that. But his death at the hands of Peacemaker, it's crazy. I forget how the shot literally cuts to an extreme close-up of a heart, of his heart, not literally his heart, but a heart, and the shard of material that Peacemaker uses to stab him with, you just see it cut straight into it and it's so bloody but it's just so vivid and you didn't expect to see anything like that i was hoping to see stuff like that but you didn't fully expect them to be able to do it and they did that and it's that shot in particular especially with the sound editing the sound editing for this movie is so good you feel every single shot you feel every punch Every splatter of blood, it's just crazy. And it's so well edited from a sound perspective because you hear every crunch, you hear every stab. This in particular, this heart getting stabbed scene is just, oh, it's just so squelchy and gory, but amazing. I loved it. So that's one thing I really noticed the second time around, how much I enjoyed that in particular. I'm sick for enjoying that, but I just did a lot. But on top of this, there's certain scenes in particular when the visuals are just so stunning and so well done. The rain sequence. I'm not fully sure about the rain sequence in general because it makes not a lot of sense how rain just randomly starts falling down extremely heavy to the extent of which it's overexposed and it's just insanely overdone. But it kind of works because they're just going for this whack-ass comic book style visuals and it works. But the rain in particular, 
it starts to fall and then a minute later it's all gone so i don't understand who's controlled that because none of the characters can control the weather as far as i'm aware but maybe king shark can do it maybe he can just summon the water like aquaman i don't know but yeah the rain coming it made no sense but it looked amazing and the visuals for that scene everything's sort of whitened and overexposed but then the blood is so jarring and in contrast with the whiteness it's just it's amazing it's so bloody and so vibrant to see it's beautiful yet there are moments in it when it's horrible to look at because king shark for instance splits a guy in half and you see the bones you see the blood you see everything Rick Flag shoots two guys and takes both of them out, but half of each of their stomachs is missing. It's gorgeous, okay, it's gorgeous with an emphasis on the gore. It's gorgeous, is what it is. It's just so gory, but oh my god, it's amazing. And that scene in particular, the way the blood was used to just extremely harsh contrast the rest of the backdrop, amazing. Another scene that did this for the visuals, but in a different manner, was Harley's escape scene, which I mentioned previously. But they did something really clever with how every time she would stab or shoot somebody, there would be like flowers that came exploding out of them, along with the blood. So everything just looked like art. It just looked so artistic. And I didn't understand that either. I don't understand why there's flowers. It's just a bit of a loopy scene, but it works. You wouldn't expect this to actually work, but with the angle of what the film is going for throughout, this sort of thing is expected, and this sort of thing doesn't stick out like a sore thumb, it works. So honestly, seeing all the flowers with the explosion of colour and blood and everything, it was so good. It didn't make a lot of sense, but it didn't need to. It really didn't need to. Same with the rain scene. All of these things don't need to make sense, because A, they look gorgeous, B, it's Suicide Squad, nothing has to make sense, and see, this is just what James Gunn is doing. He's just bringing this insanely unique perspective to everything. And boy, oh boy, does it work. Another thing that I like what James Gunn does with the film is how certain action sequences are filmed differently to what you'd expect. So along with the flower scene, along with the rain scene, you've got the fight scene between Peacemaker and Rick Flagg. And for the first half of that fight, you just see it in the reflection of Peacemaker's helmet, which is so clever because even though it's not the clearest of shots to see, you don't need to. You don't actually really need to see how the actual fight is going down. It's just that sense of being able to see it through the reflection of this character who's kind of turned evil. It's like looking in the mirror and seeing the real image and seeing it in the helmet as it slowly pans around. It's gorgeous. It's so clever. You haven't seen that in the types of films before and it kind of plays into the irony of his stupid ass helmet and how it is just so reflective because people like Captain America they wear these helmets that you don't really see proper reflections in but with this helmet it is like a toilet seat as Bloodsport mentions previously and it's funny because that then comes back around to see it being used so well and so uniquely for this fight sequence it was great the last thing I want to mention is how there were a few times I was thinking, yeah, I've seen this before in other things and it feels very much like it's been copied to an extent. The biggest culprit for this is when they're about to face off against Starro the Conqueror and everybody's got their thing to do and Bloodsport turns to King Shark and he says, Unawe, he's Nom Nom. And I'm thinking that's exactly the same thing that happens in the first Avengers film when Cap turns to Hulk and says, smash. And then Hulk goes up to smash the Chitauri, 
The exact same thing happens with King Shark, or Anarwe as he's known. He then goes nom nom and jumps up to attack Starro and bite him and eat him. That's exactly the same thing replicated from the Hulk. It's different because it's a shark and it's not the Hulk, whatever. But I'm willing to overlook this because I'm pretty sure this has been used as a tongue-in-cheek reference. Because there's bound to be so many references to previous comic book adaptations that have come before. So to have this little nod, I did think it was funny. But it is evident that they did kind of just copy something we've seen before. And something we know and love before. Because the Hulk smash scene is one of the most iconic scenes from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And everybody knows it. Everybody loves it. So then to see this replicated, maybe it is kind of a good thing to say, look, we appreciate what this did. Let's do this for ourselves. But also I'm thinking they could have done something slightly different maybe i don't know i don't know what they could have done different but it's enjoyable and that's the main thing it's fun the whole film is just fun even when it isn't the most original film which is for a very 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 small chunk of the film the majority of this film 90 percent of this film is fresh and unique it's just the occasional thing here and there does pop up that we've seen before but even when that happens, it's still the most fun you could have. And sometimes it's done better than the way we've seen it before. So I can't grumble. I really cannot complain about that. This has been The Suicide Squad. I've been Kieran. I'm looking forward to what the future holds for these characters and for DC in general. I want to see more of Bloodsport, especially his weapons. I'm excited for the Peacemaker series early next year. Everything's looking promising for DC. I could not have said this five years ago when Suicide Squad came out. This was a completely different story five years ago. It was around about now as well. It was just at the start of August when everything changed. I was so excited for it. My expectations were completely shattered and destroyed and it was terrible. This is the complete opposite of that scenario. I'm having a blast with it. Everything was just exciting and fun and fresh and I loved it. I had an absolute blast with it. And I hope everybody else does too. So yeah, go and check it out. If I had to give it a rating, I would probably give it an 8, maybe 8.5 out of 10. It's very good. It's far from perfect, but it's so much fun. It's so enjoyable. It's a blast, and I'm pretty sure everybody's going to have a blast with it. Especially people that hated the first one. If you hate the 2016 Suicide Squad, you're pretty much guaranteed to love this film. It takes everything you wanted and adds so much more to it. It's so good. Not for the faint-hearted, certainly not for kids, probably not for grandparents. Just stick to the adult rating and you will have an amazing time with it, just as I did. And I'll see you in the next episode of You Can't Handle the Truth.